Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's let's hear what what you people have uh, have to say about this. Okay. So what we have is about look at the following form. We have a brisa. We have a it's like a, a, a text from the time of the Tanaim, but that wasn't included in the Mishnah. Whenever the Gemara says Tana Rabbanan, it's introducing a brisa, and the anonymous sages of the brisa have the following view, that if you've repented for a sin one year, you should, it's not even that you needn't go back to it the next year, you really shouldn't. Repent each year for what you've done that year, and no more. And Rabbi Eliezer is cholek on that opinion, he, he um, opposes that opinion, and says on the contrary, the, the more you repent for the better. Right, the, so, you know, really every Yom Kippur you should search through your entire biography, so to speak, your, for all of the heinous things you've done. Go back as far as you can to when you were, you know, insolent to your parents as a toddler. Go back as far as you can, as far as you can remember. Repent for everything. That's praiseworthy. Um, and the question is, what motivates each position? So I'll throw it out to you. Why do you think the rabbis think it's such a bad thing to repent for things you've already repented for? Yes. In today's lingo, yeah. you should move on. Move on. Right? You should because it's maybe part of the sin is keep remembering the sin, keeping remembering the sin that you committed, and okay. it's still. Part of you, if you keep on dwelling on it. That's nice. Okay, so you, you've got two aspects here: psychological aspect, you know, move on, stop dwelling on it. This isn't something like isn't healthy. But also, there's a moral aspect that, that you know, there's a sense in which remembering your sins is almost like ethically problematic. It's as if you're kind of getting a vicarious joy still, a second-hand joy through the through the, the through the memory of. I often remember in yeshiva they'd often bring like ballet children, you know, the rabbis in yeshiva would often want to kind of connect with the young guys by saying how, oh, when we were, when we were at university we smoked pot, and when we were at university we weren't so from, and when we, and it, and it almost, it was almost like they were kind of celebrating how they didn't used to be, and really maybe you should move on, and then, you know, for both these psychological and moral reasons there's something distasteful about remembering your past sins, as long as you've done what you need to do to repair the damage done, right? So, repentance involves, um, um, you know, if you did actual physical or monetary or even psychological damage to another person, you need, before you can really repent, you need to repair that as best you can, pay them back, apologise, etc., etc. And then you repent to God, Done. It's finished. Stop thinking about it. If you keep thinking about it, that's a real problem. Okay. Um, that's certainly one reading of what's going on over here. Um, by the end, I'm going to kind of motivate another reading, probably um, a little bit... Um, probably my reading is a little bit, does a little bit of violence to the text, but I think it's fun. Okay. So, so and Rabbi Yezef and Yaakov, uh, what, what's, what's he saying? Right. Why, 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 why on the contrary is it praiseworthy to continue? 
quoting to Hill and Nadala. Yes. That, that I, I know my weak spots. I know where I'm vulnerable. So I'm just I'm going to keep fighting against it. Yeah. I don't want to fall into that trap again, but I know something personally I have difficulty with. So I'm going to keep every year. I'm going to remind myself: don't do that. Don't do that. My sins are before me constantly. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what the psalmist says. Rabbi Ben Yaakov thinks that's a good example. Somehow knowing your weaknesses, knowing where you failed in the past. Also, you might think, I'm just riffing with you on this kind of psychological moral aspect. Um, you might think like it's a bit heartless to forget the bad things you've done in the past. Um, how dare you forget? You did something horrible. Don't, for- don't forget that you did that. Hi, would you like a handout? So, um, so here too, to, to, to mirror your reading of the rabbis, we've got a psychological and a moral aspect here. The psychological might be in terms of self-improvement um, um, and refining your ethical character. In order to do that, you really need to appraise yourself and, and know where your weaknesses are. And the fact that it was a couple of years ago when you did sin X, it doesn't mean you're really over it. You know, get over, it's not very well to say get over it, but you, you, you need to know where your weaknesses are, right? You know, the, the recovering alcoholic who says, oh, I'm not an alcoholic anymore, so I can hang out around alcohol, that's not a wise move. You know, okay, you've repented and you're no longer, you know, you're no longer off the wagon, you're back on the wagon, that's a good thing. But you need to know, don't, don't forget where you were this time last year, because if you do, you'll stumble again. Remember, um, that's the psychological aspect. And then the moral aspect might be, well, you know, if somebody wronged me really grievously, and a couple of years later I asked them if they remember what they did to me, they said, oh no, I've completely forgotten. I've moved on. Don't forget what you did to me, that's really nasty, right? Um, So there's like, there's something, it's almost something morally dubious about forgetting your past sins, right? Because that that shows like, um, it shows you're not taking, you're not placing appropriate weight on the bad things you did, if you you could just forget them. It, It reveals a kind of flippant attitude towards your past transgressions. Does anybody here have like any other? But, uh, yeah. On the other hand, if you keep on reminding, it's sort of like you don't, you didn't have enough emuna that that you repent, you know, that Hashem is going to forgive you. Okay. Asadi, yeah. And you have to believe that Hashem did forgive you at the end. So now, if you are saying it again, nice. you're kind of thinking, oh, you know, maybe Hashem really didn't forgive me. Very so nice. I have to say it again this year. Very nice. So it really shows you a little lack of emunah. Very nice. So there's a faith aspect here yeah. and a munah aspect. The rabbis saying, look, if you, if you repent this year for something you already repented for and you haven't done the sin again, it's a sin that you've not done again, and you repent a second time, that demonstrates a lack of faith that God forgave you the first time. But God is Hanan Barakul and is merciful and is, you know, graceful and, and he's forgiving and you did everything that he told you to do in order to repent. 
How dare you not believe that he's forgiven you, right? So you should you should refrain from repenting. Um, how is Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov going to respond to that? That's a good point, right? So how might Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov respond to that? Why does it why does it not show a lack of faith in God to repent for the things you did a long time ago? I do. No, I'm, I'm repeating what you were saying. Okay. It didn't show a faith of a lack of faith in yourself. Great. Okay. So. So. Um, so here you've got a lack of faith in God, according to the rabbis. Yeah. Here. Uh, it, it, it's not a lack of faith in God. It, it's a humility. It's a, it's a self-humility, a, a kind of a lack of faith in yourself. There's a. I, I should have really put this on the source sheet. There's a really cool uh, comment by Rav Tzadok Cohen of Lublin, the Hasidic, one of the Hes- Polish Hasidic masters, and he basically. Um, there's a lot of depth to this comment, and I, and I won't get into it, there, but just a superficial gloss. Is he says, well, look, as long as you remember the sin, you should repent. And when you've forgotten it, that shows you've really moved on, right? Yeah. Now, there are, now, there are different ways to forget a sin. One way is because you're flippant and you don't care about what you did in the past. There's another way, which is you really did move on, right? You are so far removed from that person that it might take many, many years of work. So that you can barely remember the things that person did. You're just, you were transformed. So if Tzadaka is kind of the opinion, well look, if you can still remember it, then you're still the same person. And if you're still the same person, you haven't done enough repenting, truva. So do a bit more truva. It's not a lack of faith in God, if you come next week, we'll talk more about this, because we're going to talk about the, nation, the, the, the relationship between personal identity, who you are, and repentance. Right? But in a nutshell, what Tzadokah Cohen is saying, well, look, if you can still remember doing it, then you're still the same person. And therefore, you haven't fully repented. Real repentance, Chuba Gomorrah, complete repentance, requires some sort of transformation of self. Okay. This is nice, uh, but that's not how we're going to read the, the Gemara. By the end, I don't, I don't mean to delete any of these readings, but I want to supplement them, because um, what, what we've been looking at here is very much what's going on in the mind of the person doing Teshuvah. Okay? Uh, and I, I'm going to try and, and motivate a reading of this Mahloket that takes into consideration what's going on up in heaven on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Okay. So, okay. In philosophy of religion, there's a big debate. It's very popular these days, probably more popular than it's been in generations, about the relationship between God and time. So, the, the, the two positions are temporalism and atemporalism. Tem- oh. oh, shucks, doesn't matter. 
temporalism and atemporalism. Um, some, sometimes the temporalists call themselves open theists. The temporalist believes that God is in time, just like us. Okay? God has a yesterday, God has a today, and God has a tomorrow. He experiences time just like us, right? When we have experiences, our experiences are very much extended in time. Try and imagine an experience that was instantaneous, you know, infinitesimally small in time. There's no such thing as an experience is extended in time. Okay? To be a, a person that experiences things is to experience things in time. And God, for the open theists, is a person a supreme person, an all-powerful person, a perfect person, but in some very real sense, a person. And so to speak, God was sitting around all alone for some very long stretch of time, and then all of a sudden, at a certain point in time, he says, oh, I'm going to make a world. And he makes a world. And on the first day, he does certain things, and the second day... And he watches the world history unfold in real time, just like we do. One day he might decide to destroy the world. And he is what some people call uh, um, sempiternal, which means he goes, he goes back forever. Right? There's no, he doesn't have a beginning point. Okay? goes back forever. But he does have an end point. The end point is now. And he keeps, he keeps growing, right? He's never going to die. Okay? He's going to go on forever too. But he has a now. That's open theism, yes. Okay, okay. Any, any questions on that? Okay. Now, in a sense, that view is like really consistent with the reading of Tanakh of the Bible. Because at least the way that God expresses himself in the Bible, he sometimes seems surprised by things. He sometimes seems to regret things. Like one of the most famous instances is before the, the flood. He regrets having made the world. Well, if God was somehow outside of time and he knew the story already, it's a bit weird that he should have regretted making... I mean, you knew right. from the beginning, no? It's a bit weird. Yeah. It sounds like the concept of simsum... Yeah. Simsum is physical space, yes. or something like... Yes. And what you're describing relates to time. That's right. So, it seems to me that if you're going to retain your respect for God's omniscience, yeah. then you... You're going to say, you know, God is above time and yeah. created time. Yeah. But what he does is to relate to us, he pretends that he, he relates to us in our time. Well, it depends, yes. Yeah, so, so interestingly, in, in Lurianic Kabbalah, so there's this notion called Sin Sun, right, where God contracts. contracts himself. And then there's a massive debate in the world of Sin Sun as to how literally we're supposed to take that, right? Sin Sun Kapshuta or Sin Sun Shalokapshuta. Sin Sun. Literally, or Simpson, but not literally. And you could do an exactly the same thing in, in terms of time. And indeed, 
some of the open theists today suggest that before the Big Bang, there was no such thing as time. So God's outside of time. Mm. But then when he creates time, he puts himself into it. Oh, in an act of Tim Sun. This is still temporalism because oh, okay. because so it's sorry. still it's still a, a, a temporalism in a fashion because saying look God now is in time, but just like with Tim Sun you can go pshuta look pshuta you could go literal or figurative, you could say yeah but God isn't really in time he just makes it he makes it seem as if he's in time with us that's no longer temporalism that's atemporalism God's not in time okay okay. So, the, the temporalists have a lot going for them. There are certain things they can explain that, that the atemporalists can't explain, but there are things that the atemporalists have going for them too. I'll, I'll try and just um, I'll try and lay some of these ideas out. So, first of all, the open theists, the temporalists, they seem to have Tanakh on their side, at least a simple reading of Tanakh. Um, the second thing is they can, ex- they can really make sense of what it means for God to be a person. We think of God as kind of, you know, having emotions, so, so he's presented. This is, this is similar to the first point, that, that open theism is consistent with the Tanakh. But God loves, God is angry, God cares, God is merciful. Those are all kind of emotions. And to have emotions, you might think, you need to be a person who can experience things. And it's very weird to think of an experience happening outside of time. In fact, you might think that's not possible. As I said, an experience, consciousness, is always extended in time. So, if I froze you, in time, you'd no longer be conscious, right? <laughs> okay. So that's what they've got going for them, but they also have some problems. For instance, we believe that God knows the future, right? God is omniscient, and, and most Jewish thinkers, with the notable exception of, of Gershonides, the Ralbag, who was an open theist, by the way, right? he was a temporalist, but with the exception of him, most Jewish thinkers think that God knows the future. Well, if you're an atemporalist, that's really hard to make sense of. Well, first of all, because the future hasn't happened yet, right? Not even for God. So how could God know it? Like, it's, it's, not, it's not happened yet. Second of all, you have this famous problem. If, if God does know the future, then it's as if the future's already written, then therefore you're not free. And basically taking God out of time and saying God doesn't experience time like us. God is above and beyond time. Solve some of these problems. Because you could say, so you you take a circle. Okay. This is an example that uh, Augustine uses in the Christian tradition. if, If you have something smack in the middle of a circle, then every single point along the edge of the circle is equally present to the thing in the middle, right? If God is outside of time, every single instant in the timeline is somehow equally present to God. So it's not like God is looking at you in the future and therefore knowing what you're... Because God's outside of time. He's looking at all time simultaneously somehow. That's... Okay. 
Making sense of atemporalism is, mm-hmm. it can make your head explode. Okay. But the reason I wanted just to put that debate on the table is because we talk a, a, a lot on Rosh Hashanah about what God's doing. What does God do on Rosh Hashanah? Counts us one by one, right? Like sheep in front of a shepherd. What does he have open on Rosh Hashanah? The book of life on death, right? And in Yom Kippur, he, he seals these books for the year to come. Well, that's all very well if you're a temporalist, because God's in time. So, yeah, on Rosh Hashanah, he's doing different things to what he's doing on Tubishvat. Right? To this fact, he's planting trees. I don't know, but he's doing something else. On Rosh Hashanah, he does one thing. On to this fact, he does another thing. Fine. But if you're an A-Templist, God doesn't have a Rosh Hashanah because God isn't in time. It's not like God wakes up on Rosh Hashanah. Oh, it's Rosh Hashanah today. I must put my kittel on. It's not. He, if, he's, if he's outside of time, if you're an A-Templist, he doesn't have a today, he doesn't have a tomorrow, he doesn't have a yesterday. He doesn't live in our calendar. It's as if, like I said, he lives outside of time. He's looking at the entire timeline simultaneously. If you ask him, what day is it for you, God? The question doesn't make sense. He's not, he's not in the timeline. He's outside of it looking down. But if that's your view of divinity, what, like what... Rosh Hashanah could be any day. Like what... What are we going to do with Rosh Hashanah? Then what's the point of atoning? Well, what's the point of atoning on this day rather than any other day? Okay. So, yeah. But it is really for men, for us. Yeah. Because that's the only way we can understand it. Good, good, okay. Put in our terms, in, in human terms. Good. You know, Hashem's there, and there's the way you move, that's how we can understand. Good. Otherwise, we don't, we, we just, it's going to be... Okay. Okay, I should know if he's there, he's all yeah. but if in our terms then it's easier for us. Good. Good. Yeah. The thing is, if you sit on Rosh Hashanah and you're thinking to yourself as you read the master, it doesn't really matter what day I do this on, this is just for me. That can be a bit of a kind of um Kavana destroyer, right? If you don't really believe that something special is happening today? I mean that. Okay. He does? He chooses the day that he's going to visit. That it is for us. Yeah. But he doesn't. He didn't make us do something on Tuesday because it's very hard to talk about because he's out of time. Yeah. It's like blind and explaining color to a blind Right. You can't. Right. The question is here's the question. If you're an atemporalist, you think God's outside of time, as loads of rabbis do and loads of philosophers do, what makes Rosh Hashanah special? That's the question. And there are many answers, but they're interesting, okay? You have to squirm a little bit. And that's what I want to do. I want to look at some potential answers to that question. Now, if you're an open theist and God's in time, you don't have this question at all. You can go home already. But... First of all, it's a good intellectual exercise to figure out what the other people are going to say. Um, and second of all, if you, if you are yourself an atemporalist, if you think God's got in time, it pays, I think, to come up with compelling answers to this question because you want Rosh Hashanah to be meaningful to you. You want it to be, like, meaningful. Okay, so... 
The first source on our handout is from the Shmone Prakim, the eight chapters that Maimonides wrote as an introduction to his commentary on Pirkei Avot. So he wrote a commentary to the entire Mishnah. He wrote this commentary in Arabic. It's his first major work. He's a relatively young man. He writes a, a massive, intro, a very impressive introduction to the Mishnah in his commentary on the Mishnah. But when he gets to the tractate called Pirkei Avot, the kind of ethical treatise of the Mishnah, the Rambam writes another introduction, an introduction to his commentary on the commentary of Avot. And it's an eight-chapter-long commentary. Uh, Sorry, it's an eight-chapter-long introduction. And those eight chapters became kind of a famous work on their own. So lots of people who don't know very much about the Perish Mishnayas, you know, the, Ram, the, the Rambam's commentary to the Mishnah, will still have read Shmona Prakim, the eight chapters. You can buy the eight chapters as a separate volume. It's just, it's a work of, it's a work of philosophy. And in the eighth chapter, he's, he's talking about free will and God's foreknowledge. But here he says something which isn't directly related to, 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 to humans and, and free will, but it's related to God's relationship to time. Okay. So, therefore, the sages felt the need to say, all of the wonders that kind of um, go against the, the regular laws of nature. All of the miracles, okay? Shahayu, the Shayyihu, that were or that will be al Yehud, by way of, of God's promise to us, the messianic um, um, miracles, the resurrection of the dead. Every miracle, any miracle that was, any miracle that's going to be, Kulam kadam lehem All of them was already kind of prefigured in the divine will in the six days of creation. He placed those those wondrous things into nature at that point going onward. So he would be an example. God is sitting up in heaven very early on in the six days of creation, writing the laws of water. Like, how does water work? Okay. And there must be a word like hydrology or something, right? The study of water. So he's, he's, he's writing up the laws for hydrology. And he writes a law that, that sorry, that the empirical sciences wouldn't easily be able to discover, but he places it there in the laws of hydrology. And the law is. If a man who looks very much like Moses raises a wooden stick in a certain way, maybe only at a certain time, the water will split. Okay. Um, that will happen when it will happen. And when it happens at a time that was needed, the Jews are escaping from Egypt and the chariots are after them and a man who looks very much like Moses Moses raises a stick 
and the water splits. And at that time, right, Chashvuhu, the Devashmit Chadesh Atta, everyone's going to say, oh, this looks like a new creation, a miracle. But it's not so. It's not new at all. Okay. One of the challenges, if you believe that God is outside time, is to make sense of sentences of this form. God did X at time T. Right? God split the sea at a certain point in time on the, you know, the Seventh, the, the seventh day of the first Pesach, right? God split the sea at that time. God spoke to Abraham at a certain time. God, well, if God's not in time, how can he do things at a certain time? And what the Rambam is suggesting here is that it's not that God split the sea at that time. God did something timelessly. You could even say he's doing it timelessly because he doesn't exist. When you want to speak about a timeless thing, we often use the present tense, right? So God exists in an eternal present outside of of time. Everything's present to him. He timelessly writes the laws of nature. And in the laws of water is a law that the sea will split at a certain time. What we mean when we say God split the sea at time T is God timelessly does something that becomes manifest to us as X at T. Again, God timelessly does something, he's timelessly writing the laws of water, that becomes manifest to us as sea-splitting at time T. God isn't doing anything at time T because he's not in time. And that seems to be a Maimonidean strategy for making sense of sentences of this form. Do you see that, right? That's the strategy employed in our first source. Everyone with me? Yes? Then, then there are no miracles? Well, first of all, just as a parenthetical, historical aside, um, maybe it's parenthetical, of course, it's aside, that's superfluous, but um, um, it looks like the Rambam changed his mind about this. It, by the time he's an, he's an older man, uh, when he writes from Morna Buchin and his letter on resurrection, it really looks like he believes that God... Um, uh, intervenes with the laws of nature at particular points in time and, and makes miracles. But we're asking a question, your question is a good question, we're asking a question on the Rambam as he was when he wrote Perish Mishnayas. What did he think? Do you think there were no miracles? And I think he'd say, well, yes and no. There are no miracles if what you mean by a miracle is God changing his mind about the laws of nature for a minute. God doesn't change his mind. If that's what you mean by miracle, there are no miracles. But if what you mean by miracle is God writing the laws of nature such that fortunate things will happen, you know, like exactly what we need to happen, then you can call that a miracle. You can call that a miracle still, right? Because it's not what we expect. 
you know, that's right. Yeah, so that's it's just, so, that's right. That something propitious is propitious. That's right, it's propitious. And it, and, it's and not outside of nature, but it's propitious. That's right, it's not outside of nature, but it might appear to us to be outside of nature, right? Because it, it's outside of the laws of nature that are apparent to us, or something like that, yes. So, it feels a little bit like either semantics or cheating, because let's use the example yeah. of splitting the sea. Yeah. Splitting the sea was in order to save the people because they had been unjustly yeah. or there was a promise they were leaving. Yeah. Um, he intervenes like if you if you earn it. So yeah. the earning part. No, but that could be written. That could also be written into the laws of nature. There could be some very complicated laws that we can't really yeah. ascertain through the sciences. That do you know what? It will only rain in the Middle East if people behave themselves. Okay? It's a law that the meteorologists might not be able to detect, but it's still a law of nature, right? So it can still it can still be responsive to our behaviour. Okay? But but the, the the only idea yeah, it is a bit of a trick. All we're trying to do is make sure that we're not we're able to talk as if God's in time without implicating him temporally, right? Without actually putting him in time. Yeah. Um, but just already said, and his kulam kadam on the chafik b'shisha he may bring yeah. sheep. Yeah. So not understand if God's not in time. Then it happens that God created the world. Of God so the idea, would, the idea would be, you're you're right. You're right that that seems to be an unfortunate way of writing it because he's putting God in time at least in the six days, right? Right. So so I think a more perspicuous way of of putting what it really does seem to be the Rambam's point would have been in God's timeless act of creation, right? Um, Which became manifest to us in the first six days of time. (laughs) But, yeah. um, Good point. It does make sense, though. Yeah. Because when you said he created the laws of water, yes, but it's not apparent to us. So yes. in the creation of the laws of water, yeah. it could have been in the laws of the water. Yeah, this will happen if yeah. if the right things. You know, but when you see, you see the calm of yeah. you know the water, the yeah. calm of the sea. That's right. It's inconceivable for us that this right. could sleep. The way the science works yeah. is it 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 um is fueled by. Uh, um, observed patterns of data. Okay. Now th- you're not going to get a pattern because this is only going to happen one time in history. So this law of nature, if there is such a law, is one that science will never discover. That doesn't mean it's not a law of nature. There was, um, there was a show on Channel 13 they were trying mm-hmm. to say all the macros. Uh, they were reasonable. Yeah. In other words, there was a reason because it was blood, it wasn't yeah. blood, because they're under water, or they were the world. There was a disease in the, in the yeah. fish that yeah. made them all yeah. bleed, and then the frogs yeah. escaped yeah. the water, and then yeah. the. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could understand that if, that, if God had put that in order sure. into nature. Sure. So at that time, except for us to understand that, yeah. it had to have been a miracle. Right. So that, this, is, this is the Maimonidean strategy at least in Parish Mishnayas. And what you could try and do is apply that to our Rosh Hashanah question. Unfortunately, it becomes a little bit weird, okay? Because what we want to say now is something like, God judges us on Rosh Hashanah. That's the sentence we want to analyse. And it's going to come out something like this, and I'll try and make sense of it in a minute, but it, it is going to just sound like 
philosophical blah blah at the moment, right? God timelessly judges and this judicial function becomes manifest to us and and maybe even you know if you want to appeal the verdict don't do it on some gedalia because the judicial function of, of, of God isn't manifest to you on, on some gedalia do it on Rosh Hashanah Rosh Hashanah is the day when God's timeless judicial aspect is made manifest to us now here, here are some of the problems problem number one okay here, with the, with the splitting of the sea example, it works so nicely because the language of manifest is, you could almost be, uh, it's almost synonymous with ob- ob- observable. We stand at the sea and we see something happen. The water does this tremendous thing. We, something that God is doing timelessly has certainly become manifest to us. But nothing observable about Rosh Hashanah is different. I mean, there are those Hasidic stories about they try to make Shabbos on a Tuesday to see whether it feels the same, right? Does Shabbat feel the same as a Tuesday? But come on, right? You know, if, if you, you know, if you had amnesia for a while and then you recover your senses and you say, what day is it? And someone says, oh, it's Rosh Hashanah. And you're, oh, it's Rosh Hashanah, I better start happening. And it's only joking, it's just, you know, to Bishvat. You wouldn't have known. You wouldn't be able to say, oh, I knew... I knew you were fitting. It just doesn't feel like Rosh Hashanah. The judicial aspect of God just wasn't manifest today. No, there's no... It, it's not completely analogous. What you're going to have to say is something really weird. Like... When the judges of the Sanhedrin decide that the new moon has come, that invests the first of Tishrei with an invisible, unobservable, metaphysical quality. A special quality that that time has, such that God's judicial aspect or function is somehow approachable, or manif- you know, not, man- not, not observable, but approachable. This is the, this is the most propitious day, propitious day for beseeching him. That's, 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 that's some weird stuff. You can say that if you like. So that's the, option, the first option I'm laying down on the table. And, and it's inspired by the Rambam, but I'm pretty sure that it's not his answer to, to this question. Okay? This question is, what's going on in Rosh Hashanah? What makes Rosh Hashanah special? Okay? And I don't think he'd say this. This is inspired by something he says elsewhere, but I don't think that's how we'd answer the Rosh Hashanah question. Okay, moving on. Source number two. Here is a lovely little Gemara that's much easier to read, once again, if you're a temporalist and you believe God is in time. Here it goes. The Mishnah says, Ha'ova lifnei ha'teva b'yontav 
של ראש השנה, השני מתקיע. The person davening, doesn't say davening, but the person davening in front of the bimmer, in front of the ark, sorry, on the yom of Rosh Hashanah, the second person to daven, i.e. the chazan for Musaf, rather than the chazan for Shachrit, the chazan for Musaf is the one who should blow the shofar. Now we actually don't, we often don't follow that custom, but the Mishnah suggests that the, the chazan for Musaf should blow the shofar, and in times when Halel is said, Harishon Makreta the, Halel, the guy who dabbins Shachrit, the first person to dabbin, the first Hazan, should be the one that says Halel. The Gemara says, from the fact that it says, on those days when Halel is said, Michlal. The Rosh Hashanah lake a halal. You can infer from this Mishnah that on Rosh Hashanah there isn't a halal. Because it says, you know, on Rosh Hashanah do this. Oh, and on days when there's halal, do that. So we infer from this Mishnah that there's no halal on Rosh Hashanah. And certainly that's how we pass in. We don't say halal on Rosh Hashanah, because otherwise lunch would be even later. But that's not the reason the Gemara gives. My timer, what's the reason for not saying halal on Rosh Hashanah? My, the reason I gave was, was uh, so that lunch shouldn't be too late. But Rabbi Yavahu had a different answer. <laughs> Rabbi Yavahu Rabbi said, <laughs> The ministering angel said before the Holy One, blessed be he, Master of the universe, <laughs> Why aren't they singing a song before you? And that Shira is Hallel, right? Why aren't they saying Hallel? Right. These are the most auspicious days of the year. You're going to say Hallel on Hanukkah, but you're not going to say Hallel on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? What's going on? You always imagine, you know, that the angels are saying Hallel on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Amalahen, God responded, Efsha. Melech Yoshev al Kisei Din, the Sifrei Chaim, the Sifrei Meitim, took him the Fanaf. Could it be that a king, or the king in this instance, would sit on the throne of justice and the books of life and death would be opened before him for Yisrael, Omri, and Shira? And the Jews are singing a song, singing Hallel? Not appropriate. Not appropriate. Not given what's going on up there, that we should be doing that down here. Fine if you're a temporalist, right? Because same day, two different things. Something's going on up there that makes it not appropriate for me to be doing something down here. But if you're not a temporalist, it doesn't make as much sense. Now, what's interesting is the Rambam Paskins like this, like this Gemara. He takes this Gemara. But the Rambam is not a temporalist. The Rambam doesn't think God is in time. Okay? He's not in space, he's not in time. So look here, the third source, Mishnah Torah, Hilchot Megillah Lachanaga, Chapter Gimel Halacha Vav. V'lo halal shalchanaka bilvad hu shemedivrei sofrim, ela kriya ha-halal ha-olam medivrei sofrim, v'chol ayamim shegamrim bahem et ha-halal. It's not just halal on, on Hanukkah, which is rabbinical, Medivrei Sofrim, it's not actually clear what the Rambam ever means when he says 
The Rambam seems to have three categories. Midoraita, something is biblical. Midorabanan, something is rabbinical. And Midivrei Sofrim, which often gets just translated with the rabbinical. But it's not, it's not clear why the Rambam uses those three terms rather than just two. But anyway, he says it's, it's not just Halal on, on Hanukkah, which is Midivrei Sofrim. Halal is always Midivrei Sofrim. That's the famous Machloket, Rambam, Ramban. Ramban thinks that Halal is Midoraita. At least on certain occasions. Uh, anyway, that's not what we're going to look, look at here. Vishmanasa Yom Vishana, on 18 days in the year, he's not counting Yom Hatzma'ut. Mitzvah halal. It's a mitzvah to say full halal. He doesn't have Yom Yushalayim either, in case it's a mitzvah. These are them. Shmonat Yamei Hachag. The eight days of Sukkot. The eight days of Pesach, the Yomat the first day of Pesach, and at Seret. Aval, Rosh Hashanah, it's not Shavuos at Seret. Aval, it's not Shmini at Seret. Aval, Rosh Hashanah of Yom Kippurim. Ain bahen hala. No halal on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Which, where does he get that? Where's his source? It's our Gemara. Okay, the Gemara we just learned. But what's his reason? Lefi shahen yimei tshuva v'yira v'pachad. V'pachad. Lo yimei simchi yateira. They're days of repentance and awe and fear. Not for like abundant simcha. V'lotik no halal v'purim. You don't have halal on purim. Uh, because, and that's an interesting sukkah that you should, that you should uh, look at when you get to Purim. The reading of the Megillah is a halal in a certain sense. And, and um, the Vedic has very interesting things to say about that. But this isn't a Purim shir, so we're going to ignore that detail right now. What's really interesting is the Rambam seems to have rewritten the Gemara. The Gemara is all about what's going on up there, okay? And the Rambam makes it all about what's going on down here. Well, that makes sense because he's not a temporalist. So he's going to read that Gemara as a metaphor, or something like that. He's not going to take that Gemara too literally. God isn't really on the genre opening up books of life and death, because he's not in time. But it really is for us a day of awe, etc., etc. Okay, but we're trying to hone in on what the Rambam really thought. So our next, our next um, source is source number four, Mishnah Torah, Hilchot Shuvah, Perek Aleph, Halacha, Gimel. Okay, we're going to learn uh, Gimel and Dalek, these two Halachot. Bismanazeh, in these days, I'm going to sit down and start um, wandering around. It's distracting for you all, surely. In these days where there is no temple, and there's no altar, kapara for kapara, for atonement, all we've got is tshuva. That's the only way now to atone for our sins. But the good news is, tshuva works for any sin. 
You don't need sacrifices. This, in terms of Jewish-Christian polemics, was a big deal. Some Christians were of the opinion that when there's no temple, there can be no tshuva, there can be no atonement. There's certainly verses in Sefer Vayikra that make it look that way. It says you shouldn't eat the blood of an animal because the blood has an efficient. And one time it says, and the blood is what brings atonement. Right? You put the blood on the Mizbeach and then you get kapara. Well, if there's no sacrifices, how are you going to get atonement for your sins? We're all walking around with a stench of sin. So the Christians say, ah, it's okay because there's this korban called Yoshki. Right? Jesus is a sacrifice and, 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 um, and his is eternally somehow valid. There's no such thing as atonement these days other than through him. And though there are certain verses that you could try and stand that up upon, it doesn't really stand up in the final analysis, right? Because there are plenty of occasions in the Tanakh where it's apparent that the Jewish people or individuals received atonement without a, a sacrifice. For instance, the Jews had a 70-year exile with no temple, no sacrifice. They had sinned, and yet God forgave them of their sins because he allowed them to come back and build a second temple. So it seems there was atonement without sacrifice. In the book of Esther, there was an evil decree passed against the Jewish people. There was some sort of tshuva, and the decree was annulled from on high without an act of sacrifice. Um, and as we're going to see, the Rambam makes a big deal of this verse from Sefer Vayikra, this day atones for you. The day of Yom Kippur atones for you. Okay, so let's see how Tshuva works. We're still in, in Halacha 3. Afilu Rasha, Kol Yomav, somebody who's evil all of his days. Vasa Tshuva Ba'achrona, and he does Tshuva right at the end, meanwhile, his very last day. Not one iota of his wickedness will be remembered. As it says, The wickedness of the wicked person will not be, a, you know, he will not stumble over on the day of his returning from his wickedness. It, it evaporates. You do tshuva, the wickedness evaporates. If you've repented, then Yom Kippur does the atoning. As it says, So what we have here is like... Uh, um, a two-stage process. This becomes much clearer in the next halacha. So, there seems to be two elements um, that you need to repair when you do a sin. It's as if one is moral and the other, so to speak, um, is spiritual or if you're Maimonidean, you could, you could maybe read it as legal instead of spiritual, as I'll try and explain. There are these two elements, right? So the, well, the one moral is, you've done something wrong. You've got to repair for that. Well, the way to repair for that is pretty simple. You, you, you regret it. 
you do vidui, you verbally confess your regret, and you do your, your damnedest to make amends, right? If you've damaged other people in one way or another, you've got to fix that. If you've done all of those things, then morally, m- pardon? Which one? And not to do yeah, not to do again. You need to really be a reformed character, so you need to resolve not to do again. Right. If you've done all of that stuff, from the moral point of view, that's it. Right? If we didn't have God in the picture, we didn't have commandments, and we didn't have any we'd 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 probably come up with something like this ourselves. You've done something bad, you wanna reform yourself, what should you do? Well, repair the damage you did, try not to do it again feel bad about it. All those things seem quite intuitive and plausible. From a moral point of view, you're done. In, in the language of Yom Kippur, we talk about Anosh Hashanah, we talk about these two things, tahara, purity, and kapara, atonement. And it seems like the two in some ways might come apart. Maybe you've, you've cleansed yourself of sin. There's a kind of a tahara because you, you're, you're a new person. But what about the kapara, the atonement? If you want to think about it spiritually, you can say, well, there's a stain on your soul. And that needs to be cleaned. If you want to think about it legally, it could be you have a halachic duty to bring a korban to the temple. Right? You've got this, this need not just to make moral amends to Harah, but some sort of legal need to make amends more systematically or formally. Kapara. And the Rambam's point is repentance brings you stage one. Let's call it Tahara. Yom Kippur itself the day, it's an absolute Yom Kippur. The day itself brings you stage two, Kapara, as long as you have um, stayed true to your repentance. Okay? So let's, let's look what he says in Halacha 4. Afal Pisha had Shuvamachaperet Alakol. Even though tshuva is, is good for, for atoning for all sins, and that the day itself of Yom Kippur atones, Yeshave Rot, and then by the way, you can see it, it doesn't atone for you if you haven't repented. He said that in the last halacha, right? The day of Yom Kippur repents for those who've done tshuva. Okay. Yeshave Rot, anyway, there are sins. Shehein mit kaparim l'sha'atan. There are some sins where you get your kapara immediately. V'yeish averot shehein mit kaparim elaliyachazman. There are some sins you don't get your kapara. So there are some sins where stage one and stage two come simultaneously. You've done a minor sin. You've done repentance. That's it. Legally, let's put it this way. Legally. Your slate is now clean. Okay? Um, but there are some sins where there needs to be a time lag 
between stage one and stage two. You've done everything you need to do, but your slate isn't really clean, at least not from like the legal sense. It might be morally, but it's not somehow spiritually or legally until after a certain amount of time. How so? Avar Adam al mitzvat karet. A person transgresses a positive mitzvah that doesn't have the punishment of karet associated with it. Va'asa and he repents, she repents. Eino zazmisham ad which is a, a long-winded way, a poetic way of saying he gets tshuva immediately. He, get, he gets kapara immediately. So a person didn't put on tefillin in the morning. So maybe it was over an assay. He repents that afternoon, done. Okay, the slate is clean. Uh, as it is said, shugu banim shavavim erpam shavotechem Return backsliding to your children, I will heal your backsliding. Avara al mitzvah lo taseh she'en v'karet v'lo mitat beitin v'asad shuvah shuvah tola v'yomak purim chapeh So you did an avara like um, it's a lota affair that doesn't have karet, it doesn't have so you and it doesn't have meat that baked in. So you, you ate some unkosher food. Okay? Uh, I think that fits in that category. You repent. You, your slate isn't clean until Yom Kippur. Okay? Um, That day has a certain legal function. It wipes slates clean. Whose slate does it wipe clean? It wipes clean the slate of a person who's who's transgressed a negative mitzvah that doesn't have karet or or execution as its punishment and, and has stayed true in their repentance. It wipes their slates clean. Okay. Avara al crater to meet at Beitin, that's a tshuva, a person who transgressed a mitzvah where the punishment, whether it's positive or negative, where, where the punishment is karet or execution, tshuva v'yom kippurim tolim, tshuva and yom kippur are still not enough, they help, v'yisurin hava'im so for, the, for particularly uh, severe sins, there's a stage three, which is suffering. I'm not going to examine that. That's a very weighty matter. Somewhat disturbing to... I don't know how to do it. If, if, if the punishment is mm-hmm. either courage or capital punishment... Yes. Then why is that more serious and you have to wait to... No, 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 no. It's if there is correct or capital punishment. Oh. So there are three stages. This is... Three... three, No, no worries. The the three levels of severity. The lightest sins, it seems, are transgressing a positive mitzvah where there's no... There's no current and there's no meter. 
so, so uh, and, uh, uh, you know, you forgot to light Shabbos candles one Friday. Okay, right. that's an assay. It might be a derabanan. It might be derite. It might be whatever exactly. It's it's still an assay of some form, but it's certainly not karet or meter. You feel bad about it. You you do trigger internally. Forgive it straight away. Done. Next stage is you do you do a lot assay where there is neither krita, karet nor uh, nor execution. But the idea is it's being a negative transgression is already worse than a positive one. So you ate pork. You need to wait for Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur will be mechapeh for you. But you did something worse than that. You, you, broke, you broke Shabbat, you know, bemazed, um, something like that. Or you, you, you ate on Yom Kippur, or you, or you uh, ate chametz on Pesach, which uh, assays where there's karet, then suffering can play a role in bringing about your final atonement. Okay? That, for me, that's a very troubling notion, but it's not the notion I want to concentrate on right now, but um, maybe we can talk about it a little bit later. People want to ask questions about it. Um, but he has a verse for it. Ufakadati b'shevet pesha'am uvingaim avonam. Right, it's a verse from Tehillim. Then will I visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with strokes. Okay. Um, what are we talking about in this whole in this, in this whole halacha? When there was no chilul Hashem in your transgression. Chilul Hashem is a difficult thing to define, but he would be a clear case. If you did any of these transgressions in public in such a way as to make it clear that you somehow had little regard for your Judaism, that would have been a chilul Hashem. It doesn't matter whether we did it with an assay or a lot assay, it doesn't matter whether it's minor or severe. If, if you did it in a way that made it a chilal Hashem, then nothing that we've said so far applies. Aval hamachal al Hashem, because if you are in that category, your sin was done in such a way that it was chilal Hashem. Afal pisha asad shuva, even though you repent. The Hikiyah Yom Kippurim, and Yom Kippurim came and passed. Vahu Ahmed Bechuvato, and he uh, or, her, or she remained steadfast in their repentance. Ubawa Lav Yisurim, and they were even they even suffered somewhat. Einomit Kapelo Kapara Gemura Adshiyamut. Only when they, the day they died, I'll get it. If they stay, if they stay steadfast in their Sugar right up until their dying day, then on the day they die, fine, slate clean. Ella Truva Yom Kippurim Vyisurim Shloshtan Tolim Umitanakapa. These three things are not sufficient. They're necessary, they're not sufficient. You're also going to need to die. As it says in, in uh, Isaiah, Vaniglava Oznaya Shem Svaot. And the Lord of hosts revealed himself in my ears. Um, as the verse continues, Im ad tumtun. 
Surely this iniquity shall not be atoned until you die. But when you die, it will be atoned. Nobody doesn't get atonement if they're steadfast in their tshuva. Okay. There's a lot going on in this halacha, but the thing that I wanted to pay attention to was merely this. There is some legal function that Yom Kippur is playing. Okay? You don't need to get into weird kind of mystical metaphysics. There's a legal function. Okay? Jewish law wants to ascertain whether Nisa is a good or a bad person. Okay? Now, Jewish law and kind of ethics are related to one another, but they're not synonymous. Okay? Um, for instance, sometimes the halacha falls short of ethical requirements. Um, as, the, as Nachmanides says, it's possible to keep every law in the Torah but still not really be such a great person. And that's why an extra law is needed. Kedoshim to you, you should be. Okay. There are other times where it seems like the halacha is asking us to go further than what ethics would have told us alone. N- nothing in the ethical world told us that we shouldn't eat pork. But now it's wrong to eat pork. Well, not because of merely ethical considerations, because of halakhic considerations. So the halakha and the ethical are related in important ways, but they're not exactly the same thing. Now, clearly, if Nisa did bad things in her past, but she sincerely regrets them, and she's never going to do them again, she's resolved, and she's steadfast. Then, from the purely ethical point of view, we'd say, yes, yeah, she's, she's fine. But we're asking, like, a halachic question. Does she qualify as a penitent yet? And that depends sometimes. How severe was the sin, and has Yom Kippur been? In that, in that purely legal question, Yom Kippur has a special role to play. Just like, I don't know, when's the first day of the tax year in America? In England, it's the 1st of April. 15th of April, okay? So the 15th of April, it's not like a magical day. It's not, it's not like time itself has a different quality on the 15th of April, such that taxes must be in by then. It's nothing about time itself. It's just the legal fact that that's the day when taxes need to be in. Jewish law establishes that certain people are not considered a penitent until there's been a certain amount of time between their act of repentance, uh, bef- since their act of repentance. And what's the calendar date that has that legal significance? It's Yom Kippur. So, what we can say is this. God's outside of time. God isn't judging us on Rosh Hashanah any more than he's judging us any other day. But the first ten days of Tishrei have a legal significance. Okay? Those are days where you've really got your last chance for that calendar year, just like the, the rush before the 15th, 15th of April, I suppose, to get your tax returns in. From the, first of, from the first of Tishrei to the 10th of Tishrei, it's your last chance in that calendar year to be considered a penitent. Okay? So that, those, days are very, those days are very significant. Look, every day is significant. You could do Tshuva now. You should do Tshuva now. But Rosh Hashanah, you, it's, when Rosh Hashanah comes in, it's a massive warning. Guys, you've got 10 days left. And I think that that's what 
the Rambam is going to want to say when, when the liturgy and the rabbis speak as if God is sitting on high with books. Of course it's not. God isn't in time. But, like he says, you shouldn't be saying Hallel and Rosh Hashanah. Why shouldn't we be saying Hallel and Rosh Hashanah? Not because of what God's doing, but because for us these are days of Yira and Pachad. They're not days for Simcha Yatera. Why not? Because the 10th of Tishrei is coming and that has a massive legal significance. And that's just legal. It's nothing to do with theology. It's just the Halacha. God could have picked another day. Just like the, the federal government could have picked another day to be the, the, the... It's nothing about what God's doing. It's nothing about what the um, Secretary for the Treasury is doing on the 15th of April that makes that the day the tax returns needs to be in. Okay. So, so, okay. Option one was that... Um, so option one was the day has a special magical quality that allows you to access God's timeless din. I find that a bit weird, but I put it in there as an option. Option number two. The significance of Rosh Hashanah is purely legal. Right? The significance of the Aseret Yemei HaTshuva, the ten days of repentance, is purely legal. The tenth of, 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 the, of the month is the last day before which you can be considered a penitent for that year. Otherwise, you're going to have to wait a whole year. Right, you, you, you ate unkosher food and if you don't repent before that, before the 10th of Tishrei you're going to have to wait an entire year before you can be considered a penitent in the eyes of the law it's a big deal, halakhically um, but there's a third option and, and here is where we go back to where we started al Gemara in Yoma and al between the rabbis Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. This is a bit crazy as I'm thinking about it. Okay. So, I was having a conversation with, with, with Dean Zimmerman, who's a professor of philosophy at Rutgers. He's a very prominent philosopher. He's also a devout Christian. And he's a um, prominent open theist. He thinks God is in time. But I was having this conversation with him about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and I was saying, you know, what do you think an atemporalist should say about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? First of all, he's a Christian, so he couldn't care less. And second of all, his, his uh, sorry, I, I asked him what he, thinks an a, what he thinks an atemporalist should think. And second of all, he couldn't care less because he's a temporalist. He thinks God's in time anyway. So he doesn't think this is a great question. But I asked, just imagine. Imagine you were a Jew like Maimonides. You think God's outside of time. What would you say about Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? And this was the suggestion he came up with. Okay. So, God's outside of time. Imagine this is the timeline. Okay. This is the beginning of time. And that's the end of time. Okay. And God's standing in the, in the middle, so to speak, outside of the timeline. And every single point along the way is, so to speak, equally present to God. He's just looking at them all simultaneously. That's the atemporalist vision of God. Well, God judges us. We believe that God judges us. He's sitting there, he's watching us our whole lives. He's looking at our entire lives simultaneously. 
and he's judging each one of us. But maybe he divides our lives up into units and judges each unit. Okay, so here's one unit of your life. He judges that. Was that a, was that a good bit of what's your name? Was that a good bit of Barbara or a bad bit of Barbara, right? And now we'll look at this, this section here. Is that a good bit of Barbara or a bad bit of Barbara? So he divides your life into chunks and he, he judges, he's simultaneously judging them all. He's not judging you, Barbara. He's judging, no, he's ju- judging certain chunks of her life, right? Let's say he's judging certain years. So he divides Barbara's life up into year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. He doesn't judge Barbara. He judges year one. Was that a good year or a bad year? He judges year two. Was that a good year or a bad year? He judges year three. Was that a good year or a bad year? How so? Yeah, that's right, that's right, very nice, very nice. So Yishmael here might be not so good, but right here, he's all right, I'm not going to do anything to him. That's very nice, that's what, that's what Hashem is saying. So Hashem divides your life up into temporal chunks. We could call them chapters of your life, we could call them years. He judges your life, he, he divides your life up into years. And he doesn't judge Nisa's whole life, that would be unfair, because... It, she fluctuates. We all do. He judges each year as they come. He judges them all at once. Year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, two. You know. And he gives them each a score out of ten, let's say. Oh, that was a good niece a year. That one wasn't so good. But don't worry, that one's great. Okay, so he, that's what he's doing. And then the question is, well, if he's dividing our biography into these temporal chunks, where are the scenes between one chunk and the next? Rosh Hashanah. Right? So he takes Nisa's life, and for each Rosh Hashanah, he draws a, a line, which divides Nisa's life into year-long chunks. And he sits there and he judges them all. Okay? Well, that means that kind of Rosh Hashanah becomes really significant to you because it, it lies on, like, like I said, it lies on the seam of two chunks of your life which are going to be judged. What do you want to carry over into the next chapter of your life? Right? I'm going to be judged next year as a new creature. How much of the old me do I want to bring with me? Right? Now, God isn't in time on this picture. God's outside of time. But he's going to be judging each year of my life as they come. So he's going to be judging five, seven, seven, six. He's going to be judging that year of my life in isolation from last year. So I want to... I want to make sure I don't take the bad stuff with me. I've got bad character traits. I've got, bad, I've got all sorts of bad things lingering in my... But I don't want to bring them with me. I want to start this new year off afresh. So I do to shiver. 
And then what we have is like, well, Rosh Hashanah now becomes very significant, and we can really make sense of the idea that, 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 God, that God's, um, the books of, of life and death are open before God on Rosh Hashanah. Of course, they're not really, because God isn't in time. But this day is really auspicious. And let's say I was really, really bad in this year. Well, maybe he'll decide not to give me another year. The books of life and death are open. Right? Maybe the seam is a 10-day-long seam, right? such that if we've been really bad last year, he'll give us till the 10th of the month. And if we haven't made amends for it, he's not going to give us another year. Yishmael was in a situation where he'd been pretty good that year. So he wasn't going to wipe him out yet, even though he knows that over here he's bad. Okay. Um, very nice Dean Zimmerman, that's a really cool picture. I like it. Is there any source for it in Judaism? Well, maybe. Okay. Because along come the rabbis in this price and they say, don't repent for sins that you've repented for in previous years. Right? Well, on, on this picture, that makes perfect sense. Right? Because this year just isn't being judged. Right? You're here. This year just isn't being judged. Well, if you've already done to sugar for the bad thing you did over there, you haven't taken it with you. So it's much not relevant. Right? Now, I'm not saying that... But you have to believe it. That's why I said they were mad. You have to yes. believe so that that's what happened. I agree. I agree. So, I'm... so, no, so I agree. So I'm... I don't think... I don't think that um, the other things that you said and the beautiful things you said in reading this Gemara should be deleted. I think instead what we're doing is supplement it. And we say, look, if you believe that God forgives you, and if you recognise the upslugging bad things you did in the past can actually reawaken them in you now, you don't want to be carrying these things with you. This, you're a new person now. Um, all of those ideas that we came up with in what the rabbis were saying about this Mishnah are, are, are complemented by this picture, but not, not undermined. And Rabbi Yezer ben Yaakov could be saying one of two things in response. He could be saying, yeah, this picture is right, but like I said, if you can still remember the stuff you did years ago, then maybe you are still carrying it with you. So you should do Teshuvah. Or, it's a much deeper Machloket, and Eliezer ben Padat thinks that God doesn't judge in this way, right? He, he judges your entire life. Right? Um, and maybe that's because he, he was a temporalist. He thought God was in time, just like, you know, with us. Eliezer ben Padat did and the rabbis didn't. Or he thought, no, God's outside of time, but still he judges your entire life in one go, for one reason or another. But still, what's interesting is you throw in this temporal debate and you get like a... Um, it's certainly a new aspect of potential difference between these two rabbis becomes salient. Okay, so 
Here we go. So option one, just in summary. Option, okay, question. If God is outside of time, then what makes Rosh Hashanah so significant? Because we can't appeal to all those kind of bogomizers we've heard about God sitting with books open on the table as if, as if he's in time. You can if you're an open theist, but if you're not an open theist, we've got a question. What makes Rosh Hashanah special if God's outside of time? Three answers. Answer number one. Inspired by that um, first Maimonides from Shone Prakim, it's a magical day. It's a day when God's judicial aspect is accessible to us. His judicial aspect is, is outside of time, but it's not always easily accessible to us. Interesting view, but it kind of makes the day somehow a bit magical. There's something kind of supernatural going on, which you might, I mean, this is religion after all, right? you might be okay with that. Option number two, it's purely legal. It's still deeply significant. Yeah, yes, Yom, yes. Yom Kippur decides in the halacha whether you have kapara or not. It's like the tax return day. Right? Yeah, in a sense. Yeah, it's got nothing. It's really got nothing to do with God. I mean, God commanded the halacha. He created the halacha. God wants you to do teshuva. Just like, just like Lahavdil, the president wants you to fill in your tax returns by the 15th of April. But he's not sitting around on the 15th of April wondering what Nisa's is doing with a. You know, God wants you to do teshuva on this day. But what makes the day special is its legal significance. Um, that, that I would hazard a guess is what the Rambam would say because of all those, those halachas we looked at about how Kapara and Yom Kippur come together and I think he thinks of Kapara at least in part as a legal notion and the final idea is that what makes Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur significant are that they are scenes in the biography of your life right, that, that divides your life into year-long chunks from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah and it's those chunks of your life which are judged and if, in, and if this one has been bad you might not get another one we don't paskin in the halacha like the rabbis of this b'risa the halacha is that you should do teshuva for everything you've ever done. That's the final source in the handout. I'm not going to read it inside. The Shulchan Arach agrees with the Ramban, Paskins that way. The practice of the Jewish people is to do repentance for everything you ever did. But at least the third option does seem really to fit hand in glove with the rabbis of that brighter that we don't actually follow. And maybe you could squirm and say, well... Even though we repent for everything we've ever done, it's still the case that our year is divided, our lives are divided into these year-long chunks that God judges. Yes. I'm sorry, I'm still not understanding why that fits into the atemporal model of God. If there are these years. Yeah, because the idea is your life has years, but God is outside of time, judging each chunk at the same time. Oh. Okay. So yeah, he, and he doesn't have a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday. He doesn't have a Yom Kippur or a Pesach. 
He's just always looking at every single year of your life, judging them, always. You ask him, what day is it? They don't have days. But you do, and your life has been divided into these chunks from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah, from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah. And God, sitting, as it were, outside of time, is looking at all of them, each chunk. He's watching you as a kid, he's watching you as, a, as an elderly woman. And, he, and he's looking at each year-long chunk and judging them. He's giving them marks out of ten, right? Okay. Um, and, at, you know, and if one of them really disappoints him, he, he might snuff out all the other, you know, all the ones afterwards. You know, that's why these days are very significant to us. Um, okay, so those are three options for how the atemporalist can make Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur significant and meaningful. Please God, our Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur should be significant and meaningful. And I hope that, that one thing you can take away from this is that when you're reading your prayer books on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and it describes something you don't quite believe is happening exactly as it says. Okay? Do you really believe that we're like sheep in front of a shepherd exactly? Is that exactly what's going on? Maybe you do and that's great. But if you don't, this day can still be tremendously significant. That's what. I was hoping to illustrate. Okay, um, thank you. And maybe I'll see you next week. Please God, we'll all be sealed and signed by then into the books of life, prosperity and good health.